If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. It's the first week of spring, and I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week, we call the senior correspondents who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to open their notebooks to tell you about how voters are reacting to Donald Trump, the GOP Congress, and the actions coming out of this Capitol that affect your lives. On the hook this week are Patty Mazay of the Miami Herald and Colin Campbell of the News and Observer in Raleigh. Hey, Patty, how are you? Hello, Kristen, how are you? I'm doing well. What do you want to talk about this week? We've got a listener who called in with a question about President Trump's willingness to allow corporations to use public lands for profit. So let's tackle that. I'd like to talk about who wins and loses all across the country in this Trump budget blueprint. And in the lightning round, we're going to look at the people making news ahead of the 2018 and 2020 elections. Before we start, I want to say thank you for all of the great feedback we're getting. In fact, this week, we have our first listener call on the show. So please keep sending your questions and your ideas and tell us what's happening in your state. Email us at btb at That's btb as in beyond the bubble. Let's get started. January 20th. The day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Welcome back to the show, Colin Campbell. It's good to see your face. Glad to be back. Welcome back to Anita Kumar, White House correspondent. Thanks for having me back. And a special welcome to a special guest, Stuart Leavenworth. Great to be here, Kristen. I'm so happy you are. So we've got a fun show today because we had a call from one of our listeners. It's Missouri native and now Maryland resident Betsy Arthur. She took a road trip through West Virginia and was taken by the corporate use of public lands. And she wanted to know... President Trump's policy on public land use. Welcome, Betsy. I'm so glad you called. Hi, Kristen. Good to talk with you. Tell me a little bit about how this topic, how it came to you, really. I have a pretty strong interest in kind of public lands, a lot of hiking and being outside in general. And I've been paying attention to what's happening with the public lands. And I've been reading about, you know, all kinds of oil and gas development in those public lands. Um, and then I also, I do have a a really deep sympathy for the Trump vote, basically, um, even though it's not the way I personally feel. But I really understand, I think, kind of where that block comes from. But I was also curious just to see in person what it sort of looks like. So the same way that I wanted to see what oil wells look like on a national forest on public land, I also wanted to just sort of have an overall impression. And so I had a day that I didn't have work, and I just went for a little road trip. I was in, I guess, northeast kind of central West Virginia. Yeah, I saw the pictures. Yeah, I started out in suburban D.C. and then drove west on 66, which is just a normal highway drive. And then gradually it took me through some really country roads and some small towns. And that also seemed you know, pretty familiar and lots of American flags, lots of you know, iconic rocking chairs on front porches and what you would think of as prototypical Americana, you know. Um, it gets progressively worse from there, doesn't it? It's really dramatic. It goes from this kind of all-American apple pie kind of image to 
just absolute poverty that you can't even drive through and not notice. And you know, one thing visually that really struck me is the fact that there are so many outhouses. And it's just something that's very startling visually and kind of in the same vein, so many, you know, standalone individual houses that are just falling apart completely beyond the point of, of being condemned. And they definitely have people living in them. So it's those visual signs that are just obvious, obvious poverty. I just think you're bringing up a really important issue. Help me understand what you see as the link between what you call public land grab and the poverty you saw on display. Well, I, I think in my mind, the huge question is, you know, what the greater good for our public policy with these lands is and what these communities need in terms of either continuing to rely on oil and gas and coal and timber or what policies should be revised and currently it seems as if Congress is really focusing on opening up more and more development of public lands for oil and gas. But my question is whether that really is the greater good for all of us with this public land, but also um, for the communities who are relying on it, whether that truly is the, the best option. That's a really good question. I want to, in this moment, bring in Stuart Leavenworth. He's one of our correspondents here in Washington, and he actually has some expertise on public land use. In fact, he's writing currently a story about Donald Trump's proposal on the Interior Department. Stuart, what is the Trump administration's philosophy around the proper use of public land? Well, first of all, I just want to say hi to you, Betsy, and I thank you for being somebody who likes to spend time outdoors. As long as there's people like you, I think I'll continue to have a job. I just got back from spending some time in Utah near a new national monument that's been created called Bears Ears. Oh, how funny. So did I. Did you? Do you guys really actually know each other? Is this planned? <laughs> so you've been to southeastern Utah. I love that area. A lot of the BLM land that's in Utah is probably what sparked my interest in this set of public land policy issues recently. So, so you've been out there. You've seen kind of what you saw in West Virginia, which is spectacular natural beauty, but also some communities that are very poor. So, I mean, my take on it is when there's new oil and gas developments in these kind of communities, whether it be West Virginia or in southeastern Utah, they are symbols of hope and for people who hope that they'll get jobs and can enrich their communities. But kind of the reality is there's already a lot of land leased for oil and gas development that's not even being used. So it's a market thing. Why don't you bring us into your Native American story that you're working on? So I just got back from southern Utah. It's a big, grand, beautiful part of the West, bigger than the state of Delaware. That's um, not saying much. You're right. But it's 1.3 million acres, which is a, a relatively large national monument, even for Obama. Obama created this before he left office, and it was a major victory for Native American tribes. You know, they're very angry about vandals and thieves damaging the antiquities of their ancestors. But people involved in the traditional industries out in that part of Utah, the ranchers, the miners, people in oil and gas, they feel like they're getting pushed off their land. And so they want Trump to rescind the monument or at least shrink its boundaries. And so this has all revived a big debate about what kind of economy we should have for the rural West. Let's quickly listen to a piece of the video that accompanies your story. This is Sandy Johnson, a local cattle rancher. Well, the land means a lot to us. And we've took care of this land. And we don't need other people to come in and tell us what to do. My granddad was the first rancher. And then my dad 
and then myself and they're after more than just that monument. They're going to reduce you down and reduce you down and that's what has happened to these other monuments. Pretty soon they cut you clean out. Thanks to Brittany Peterson for that video. Anita, where is Donald Trump on this issue? Donald Trump has said during the campaign that he wants people to use the public lands, but he hasn't really said much about whether the federal government should acquire new public lands. So he's getting a lot of that information from his sons, Donald Jr., who's a big sportsman and hunter. And he feels like he has kind of done what he said. I mean, with the budget, he did not take away new lands. He's just not acquiring new land. But Patty, what about in Florida? In Florida, uh, we have a bit of a different situation. For the first time in years, the Florida State Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, last month voted in favor of a fracking ban. Uh, This was out of committee, so it has not actually cleared the legislature. But if it were to move forward, it would be the strictest fracking ban in the country. And suddenly, environmental concerns are just top of mind for a lot of Florida state senators, including the president of the Senate, who happens to represent a district south of Lake Okeechobee. That's the big lake in the middle of the state that provides most of the water for the southern part of the state and for the Everglades. And last year, uh, one of the discharges during the flood control of the lake caused this massive toxic pollution of this green, gooey slime that was just described over and over again like guacamole on the water. It smelled, it killed the tourism industry for a while, and in order to try to prevent future discharges, they want to buy 60,000 acres of land south of the lake to build a new water reservoir. And the problem there is that that is farmland for big sugar, and big sugar is opposed to this, and it would be very expensive, and so that is the environmental fight, and it's uh, a Republican leading the charge. It's interesting here in North Carolina, the fracking debate seems to have almost fizzled out. Our Republican legislature here was very supportive of fracking, but there really hasn't been much of a market for it. So the areas where uh, people were hoping there was going to be some fracking activity, we really haven't seen anything in the last couple of years. So it's almost uh, gone away as an issue here in North Carolina. It's interesting to me because the energy versus environment storyline has been at this simmer, a state of simmer for years and years now. It's surprising to me that it is coming up within the first couple months of Donald Trump's administration, Stuart. Has anything changed now? Well, one thing to remember is that it wasn't like Obama was anti-oil and gas. I mean, oil and gas development increased like 72 percent in the first seven years of his administration. I mean, he did very little to try to stop fracking. So the question is, are you going to open up more lands to energy development? And there's a kind of a friction between coal production and oil and gas development. Oil and gas has become so cheap that, you know, nobody really wants to mine coal like they did seven years ago. So Trump can say he's going to bring coal back on public lands, but it's going to be very, very difficult if gas prices remain so low. Thanks for your call, Betsy, and thank you for listening. Nice to chat with you. I'll be looking for your articles. Thank you. Let's get to our next topic, the budget. Now, President Trump released a budget blueprint last week. It was essentially a wish list that reflected his policy priorities, big defense boost, big reduction at state This was really all as expected. What wasn't expected was the hit to programs that help voters in rural America, the part of America that truly supported Donald Trump in large numbers. Let's listen here 
to Mick Mulvaney. He is the head of the Office of Management and Budget, and he was on Meet the Press on Sunday. The president knows who his voters are. His voters are folks who pay taxes as well. And I think for the first time in a long time, you have an administration that is looking at the compassion of both sides of the equation. Not just the compassion in terms of where the money goes, but the compassion in terms of where the money comes from. Could we as an administration, could, could I as a budget director, look at the coal miner in West Virginia and say, I want you please to give some of your money to the federal government so that I can give it to the National Endowment for the Arts. And I just think we finally got to the point in the administration where we couldn't do that. The debt is so... Anita, walk us through the big surprises in this blueprint. Sure. Like you mentioned, there was a lot of new spending on the military and law enforcement. And we knew that there would be cuts because they said basically that things would be cut to pay for that new spending. And there were a lot of really severe, dramatic cuts in lots of places that we sort of expected, like public broadcasting, which is a perennial favorite of Republicans. But then there was a lot of cuts in places that, like you said, affect rural America, things like infrastructure, cuts to long distance passenger trains, federal transportation programs, money to states and localities so that they can provide grants to various things in rural America. And so that surprised people. The magnitude of the cut surprised people. They were very severe. How is it playing out there in North Carolina, Colin? You know, we haven't had a whole lot of discussion of the specifics of it yet. I think it's one of those sort of hard documents to wrap your minds around, particularly for the average voter, to see exactly how is is this going to affect them. Anita mentioned the cuts to public broadcasting. That's already sort of creating a a bit of a backlash among the uh, public broadcasting community. And it it was interesting for me. I was looking into that last week and trying to see, you know, will NPR and PBS actually go away if public broadcasting is zeroed out under this budget plan? And I, I just spoke with the manager over at Public Radio East, which is the NPR station in New Bern, North Carolina. She says public broadcasting funds from the feds, only about 12% of their funding. So they would have to rely on their listeners more. They might have to make some budget cuts, but they wouldn't go away. The worry is that like a lot of the other uh, budget cuts in this budget, the impact is the rural communities that may not really see it coming, assuming this actually any of this comes to fruition. And so the stations that, that do PBS and NPR that would really have their livelihood threatened or their existence threatened would be in the rural communities where there's not enough funding from other sources to make up the difference of what would be cut here. Patty, what about in Florida? One of the things that the Trump administration was smart about in Florida politically was only cutting NASA's budget by 1%, which is basically negligible compared to the other agencies. And that is huge for the Treasure Coast, which went for Trump and which is used to kind of getting the budget acts every time that a president or Congress wants to cut money. So I think there's actually some happy voters that NASA is not getting cut. However, when you kind of delve into the NASA budget, you'll see that what is getting cut out of NASA is climate change projects and education. And that has really concerned scientists. We already last week had 32 scientists from major Florida universities send a letter to Trump saying, please don't cut NOAA, which is uh, under the Department of Commerce and their satellite program, not only is key for studying climate change, but also for like forecasting hurricanes. And so they're very concerned that that's one of those things that is not sexy and doesn't affect people in their daily lives. But then they wonder why the hurricane forecast isn't good, why the Russian and the Chinese technology is better than ours, and why storms end up not going exactly where the track predicts because our technology is outdated and now they're cutting their funding. Kristen saw me smiling there, Patty, not because I was smiling at what you were saying exactly, but you said that they were smart politically. And I talked to a couple administration officials in the last couple of days who said, are you kidding? This wasn't political at all. That's why I'm smiling. 
that people that think that we made the decision to cut rural America on purpose or we didn't cut something on purpose, they just roll their eyes to that. That was actually the term used to me, roll their eyes. It's annoying that people have written stories that were targeting some of our supporters. We don't really think about that. So that's why I was smiling. I will say that they said to me, Republicans. Let's stop with that a second. (laughs) Yeah. Right, because the idea that any White House puts out a budget blueprint, a blueprint that has no chance of becoming law because that's not how budgeting works in America, was not originally a political document. How does anybody in the White House make that argument with a straight face? Right. Of course, it's there has to be some politics there. There is a political office in the White House and they consult them and they are working on things. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, the man who ran the Republican National Committee is now chief of staff and the budget blueprint was not a political document. And the agency with the biggest cut is what? EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, 31 percent. And that is a huge rallying cry for the Republican base. They love hearing about EPA cuts. Yeah. I mean, a lot of actually this budget, I had a lot of people tell me in the last week, it's very similar to what Ronald Reagan proposed in his first budget. There are a lot of good Republican targets in there. So Patty mentioned EPA. IRS is also a favorite target. Even Amtrak, which we talked a little bit about affecting rural areas, Amtrak is often targeted by Republicans. I have to say, I was surprised that the Interior Department is going to face a 12 percent cut under Trump's budget. This came after his Interior Secretary made a big public show of saying he was going to fight back against big cuts. And so the White House has been saying this is not going to affect things people care about, like going to your national parks. But there's a real question what's going to happen with the cuts and with the hiring freeze that's going on. I talked the other day to a former director of the National Park Service. He said there's a real question whether the Park Service will have enough rangers and other employees to be ready for the big summer crush. Let me just tell you that I talked to a budget official yesterday who said what Donald Trump talked about on the campaign trail was military, veterans, immigration, building the wall, getting more money for law enforcement, border agents. And in order to do that, they had to make cuts. And so that was their number one priority was not actually the cuts that you're seeing, It's that they wanted to pay for all this new money in defense and military and immigration. And that was certainly consistent with their position during the campaign. And Colin, a boost to defense, a boost to the military is useful in your state. Absolutely. This is definitely a a pro-military state. And there's been concerns for years now, particularly in the Fayetteville area around Fort Bragg, in the uh, Jacksonville area around Camp Lejeune, the Marine Corps base there, that cuts to military defense spending are going to mean these communities lose a large part of their operations uh, in terms of what military facilities are located there. And that would be devastating to a lot of these communities. So these people are very happy to see that military spending is up and that the idea of any base closures or realignments or anything like that, probably less likely if we're going to be spending more on our military. Patty, have we heard from Senator Ruby? since this blueprint came out last week? Yeah, I mean, he told reporters, uh, I believe the line was, we do the budget here, just to kind of highlight the power of Congress compared to the executive. He did praise, you know, some of the education initiatives that will push for more school choice, which has been an issue of his since he was in the state legislature. But he has also, again, criticized the cuts to the State Department. I mean, he was in the Middle East over the weekend in, in Lebanon and Jordan and Israel. And he's a proponent of foreign aid. He always highlights the fact that it's really a small part of the foreign budget. And South Florida especially is really geared at looking at the rest of the world and not happy about hearing about these sort of cuts. We've also heard from moderate Republicans, including Ileana ross Leighton, who said, you know, these cuts to legal aid and meals of wheels are problematic. Florida still has 
a huge elderly population, and and that affects both parties, right? I mean, Bill Nelson, who is a Democrat, but he's up for re-election next year, was the first one in Florida to highlight the cuts to the National Institutes of Health and their research on Alzheimer's, for example. And so that's the sort of concrete example that I think we'll see them using to talk about how the cuts could hurt real people. Once Congress, Anita, gets started on the budget, what are the pieces that the White House is most committed to seeing through? What are the pieces they're going to want their Republican allies to prioritize? Definitely the things I mentioned before, the military, veterans, all those things, and the wall. Let's not forget the wall. There's $4.1 billion, excuse me, billion dollars for the wall, and they really want that to get started. They made that promise, and I know I've said this before, I say it every week, Donald Trump is all about what he said he would do, and he said he would build that wall, and he wants to get the money to build that wall. It's interesting because, you know, they're getting criticized, and they don't love the criticism, especially from Republicans, on specific programs. Obviously, nobody wants the criticism. But they feel like if they had not been able to spend more on the things they said that they would, that they would be criticized for that. They also feel like if they had increased spending, which they didn't, that, you know, they needed to take away something to pay for something, that they would be criticized for that. And they say, well, we're getting criticized from some constituents. We would have been criticized by the military or veterans. And those are our constituents, too. I want to pause here for a second just to make a quick nod to an initiative that we are a part of for an entire month. And it's all about raising awareness of podcasts. Our executive producer, Davin Coburn, brought this idea to me and I said, of course we should do this. We are podcast lovers. We are. It's a chance to partner with NPR and The New York Times and Gimlet and Radiotopia, basically everyone who makes major podcasts. And the idea here is for everyone who listens to podcasts to go and find a friend who doesn't and encourage them to try it and show them how to do it. I will confess that I was once a podcast skeptic until I discovered Serial. And I will tell you that as soon as I started listening to the folks over there, I was finding new excuses to clean my apartment. You know, I was taking longer routes home from work. I'm on the lookout for a new NASCAR podcast for you, Kristen. I know you're a fan. It's just going to be an hour of Tony Stewart yelling every week. Let us know how it goes. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. That's a good hashtag. That's a great hashtag. hashtag. All right, let's get back to our show. All right, let's get to everybody's favorite part of the show, the lightning round. Each of you gets to identify one politician or one development from the last week that did something relevant to the next election, whether 17, 18, or 20. First up, Colin. I've got kind of a quirky one this week. I spoke on the podcast a couple weeks ago about uh, the Charlotte mayoral race that's coming up this fall, and State Senator Joel Ford, who's a Democrat and is one of the main candidates in that race, well, he had a slip-up this week He was on Twitter uh, taking some heat from an LGBT activist who was upset with Ford's record on gay rights issues, and Ford responded with a gif that was an image of a pooping dog, and no one was really sure what he meant by that. It seemed kind of offensive to the people who were on the receiving end of that, and and in the end, Ford had to issue an apology, and his campaign manager actually said he's going to be only tweeting from a pre-approved list of gifts in the future so that he doesn't have these problems where his message is not getting across very well because he's using an image of a dog doing its business. Brilliant. Anita. I am going to go with a person this week, which is a different thing than I usually do. I'm actually really stunned by that. (laughs) I'm going to go with a congressman from Chicago, Dan Lipinski. And the reason I'm picking him, he's a conservative Democrat, a very conservative Democrat. He did not vote for the Affordable Care Act, and he didn't even really support Barack Obama in his reelection. Well, I didn't vote for Obamacare to begin with because I had great concerns that it was not going to work. Uh, it was going to be too expensive, really wasn't going to uh, help bring down 
the prices. If there was a good replacement being offered, I'd be willing to vote for repeal and replace. But right now... He has a possible primary challenger, Marie Newman, who's considering making a run on the left. And so the reason I'm picking him is that I think that we're seeing a lot of changes in the Democratic Party, and it's possible that you cannot be as conservative as he is. He hasn't really had a strong primary challenge, and we're going to see sort of the fate of the Democratic Party if it's moving to the left. Patty? Well, I mentioned Ileana Ross-Layton, and I've mentioned her on this podcast before, but she has become, in South Florida, perhaps the most moderate Republican. She was one of the first members of Congress to criticize Steve King, the Iowa Republican, when he talked about somebody else's babies. And she also was the first sitting Florida lawmaker to say she was going to oppose the Republican health care bill. She has now also opposed the Trump budget. So it's unclear which areas she actually agrees with the administration at this point, because most of the statements she has made since Trump has been in office have been against him, against his immigration executive order, against his refugee ban. And this is because she had an unexpectedly close reelection race last year. She is up again in 2018. It's a Democratic-leaning district. She is generally beloved. She is a social liberal, but the demographics are starting to turn against some folks in these districts now that they're no longer gerrymandered, and she is increasingly in the sights of the DCCC. So I am looking at her for 2018 as someone who is going to have to be in the spotlight a lot against the Trump administration. Stuart. So I'm going to go with Rob Quist, a Democrat who's running to fill the open seat of Ryan Zinke in Montana. Quist is a cowboy folk singer. Now be a strong shoulder to lean on When life seems cold and bare In every way I will defend you Count on me to be there And you can stand He's a big celebrity in Montana. You should check him out on YouTube. He's knocked off two more established Democrats in the special election primary. This last week he's been campaigning strongly on behalf of Obamacare. And he's running against a tech entrepreneur, uh, Greg Gianforti, who is surely the front runner. But the special election is May 25th. If Quist comes close or even ekes out a win, it'll show that things are moving against Trump in the Rocky Mountain West. And I actually mentioned him a few weeks ago because I was talking about people, celebrities, and I mentioned this folk singer. With air quotes. Yes. <laughs> actually, he probably is a real celebrity. I just had never heard of him. That celebrities thinking that they have a better chance of running now for office now that Trump is in office. Also a celebrity. But can they sing like Rob Quist? Don't ever let it get you down when trouble comes around. I don't know, actually. <laughs> Does anyone know his songs? My turn. Catherine Allen. She is a doctor who filed last week to challenge Republican Jason Chaffetz. And she's now raised $500,000 online after the congressman said poor people need to choose between buying health care and iPhones. And you know what? Americans have choices and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. They've got to make those decisions themselves. So the problem with this is that Chaffetz won his race by 47 points last year. So just like in Georgia 6, liberals look like they're spending their money and putting their enthusiasm in all the wrong places. All right, that's it for us. Thank you, Patty. Loved being here. Colin, it was so good to hear your voice. Awesome to be here as always. Anita, get back to work. I will, and who knows, by next week we might even know the fate of healthcare. Stuart, I don't know if we're ever going to have you on the show again. Mm, I was going to say what an honor it's been, and I hoped I'd come back. Oh, okay. I hope you come back. 
Thank you to our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you to our listeners. We want to hear from you, so please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state. We might even ask you to call into our show. Talk to you next week. Colin, I think you won the lightning round, but you pronounced the word wrong. Is it GIF? I've, I've heard arguments about whether it should be a hard G I'm sound GIF. or not. I am team GIF. I am yeah, with I think Colin. It's, no, it's GIF. GIF. It's totally GIF. Everybody says GIF. GIF is peanut butter, though. The guy who invented yes. it calls it GIF. Everybody says GIF. Technically, yeah. you are right, but common usage has changed the pronunciation of He doesn't that. own it anymore. I am a strict <laughs> constitutionalist when it comes to GIF language. <laughs> so black and white of you. <laughs>